I'm going to begin reading, and as you get there, you can kind of catch up to us. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, Thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. When you have found him, bring him word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their uh, treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. We've been dealing with characters of Christmas over the last few weeks. And we started with Mary, and we learned with Mary that we're to trust. Mary taught us to trust. We talked then about Joseph, and we learned that as a result of Joseph's life, we can learn to obey. And today, we want to focus our attention on the wise men and see what they can teach us this morning. In 605 B.C., the Jewish nation Israel had been overrun by the Babylonians. And when they overran them, they overtook them, they grabbed many of the most brightest and uh, most, I guess, those that had the greatest potential, and they rounded them up and they dragged them off to captivity. Most were settled in refugee camps that were outside the capital of Babylon, near the Shabar River. And some were brought into the Babylonian court to be assimilated into the government, to actually be used by the Babylonians to rule their own nation. One such a young man was a man by the name of David. David was one of these young men who was handpicked to ultimately be assimilated into the court of the Gentiles. Of course, Jerusalem finally fell completely, but it took about 20 years as in 605, they began the siege, and then ultimately they had removed virtually anyone with any real threat to their nation in three different moves over the course of 20 years. So now we have the people of God that have been carried off to Babylonian captivity. David, along with some of the brighter, more prominent, and those that showed the greatest potential were placed into government positions at some point and into maybe more positions of authority, if you will. They were um, taught the ways of the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And the people of God, as we said, were ultimately placed into the culture. Well, when they did all of that, they took with them, of course, 
their parchments. They took their Old Testaments with them. They took their faith with them. And although they were saddened by the fact that they were removed from their land, that in many cases they were separated even from their very families, they did take their God with them. And so over time, the the people, the Jewish race, the Jewish people, maintained their independence, so to speak, or their religious separation. It seems to me, as I talk to people that have moved from other countries and into America, we all kind of melt together, and before it's over with, we kind of, if we're not careful, we lose our past, and we become a people of today. The Jewish people, no matter where they have gone, have always remained to be Jewish and always remain to be faithful to their faith. So that was the same situation here in Babylon. Now we come to this situation here in the book of Matthew where Jesus Christ has been born, and a few years later we see wise men on the scene saying, hey, we're here to worship him. How did they know about Jesus? How did they come to this realization? How did they even recognize the star as being his star? Well, I believe it had to do, obviously, with those parchments and with the Word of God that had been taken into Babylon, into those nations of the East. And here we now have these kings or these wise men from the East. They had read the scrolls. They had read the Word of God. They had studied the stars. They had looked into all of these things. And now, all of a sudden, they're aware that a king has been born. Again, they knew Messiah was coming. They knew the anointed one was on his way. They knew he would be born of a woman, according to Genesis 3.15. That he would be both God and man, according to Isaiah 9.6 and Daniel 7.13. That he would come as a king, according to 2 Chronicles 6.16. That his kingdom would have no end, according to Isaiah 9.7. And that he would have, uh, they would have read even of his own death. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 through 10. And they would have been looking for a star. You say, how's that possible? Well, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star, capital S, a star out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheph. They were looking for a star. When they saw that star, they identified it with the Messiah. It's interesting as we consider the very gifts that they brought. As you read through the passage, and I did just now, you'll notice that they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, gold is a gift for royalty or a gift for a king. Frankincense is basically incense. And it's for, it was for divinity or something that you give to a God or, in this case, God, big G. Myrrh has to do with a burial. Well, these kings had a very good handle on who the Messiah was, what his purpose would be, and where he would end up. Surprisingly so. I mean, that's amazing to me when you consider that they are kings of the East or they are wise men of the East. How did they know it? Because the Bible, the Word of God, had been carried to their nation. Long before, by a young man by the name of Daniel and other captives that were taken into Babylon, and the the Word of God remained clean and clear, and it was able to help to teach them and to give them wisdom and understanding of the coming Messiah. Because they had this understanding, this knowledge, the wise men... We're searching. 
We see over in verse 1 and 2 of our passage that they say that uh, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They were searching. Also, the wise men not only were searching, but they were smart. These were some smart kings. In verse 2 again, where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star. His star in the east. And are come to worship him. Verse 7 says, Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. See, they were wise and they were very smart. They knew more than even many of God's people. Because they themselves obviously had studied the scriptures. The wise men were steered. Over there in verse 9 and 10, it tells us that when they departed from Herod, when they heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they, were re, they re, rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They were steered by God. They were guided to Jesus Christ. It's almost like the children of Israel over there in the wilderness. That pillar of, uh, of fire and, and, and the pillar of the cloud, by, uh, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of the cloud by day. And it would, when it moved, they moved. They followed the Lord. Well, in this case, the star literally moved over where the child was. It didn't just sit over top with this laser beam of light pointing down onto his face. He was two years old by now. He was no longer in a manger. They went to the house to see him. This was a young couple with a very young child. And these wise men, how many exactly, we're not sure. But we know there were three gifts so many times in the programs. You see three of them. There may have been more, there may have been few, fewer, I don't know. But what I do know is, they followed that star, and as it moved, they moved. And it finally brought them to Him. They were steered. They were searching, smart, steered, but they were also very sincere. Look at verse 11, the Bible says, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were very sincere men of God. They knew he was coming. They followed the star and they ended up in his presence. Very sincere. But I like this last point, And it's not the end of the message. This is introduction. I like this though. The wise men were sensitive. Notice in verse 12, after they'd seen the Christ child, after they'd presented their gifts, after they had worshipped and adored and, and elevated Him and exalted Him and they'd bowed before Him, now all of a sudden the Bible says, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. Remember Herod said, oh, you go find the child. Did you let me know? Because I want to come worship Him too. We know that's not what really he wanted to do because in the end he ended up taking the lives of all children that were two years old and younger. Listen, we, there, were, there have been nutcases, there have been ruthless, insensitive, evil, diabolical men and women throughout history. It's not just been in the last few days or the last few years. It's always been that way. This man killed thousands of babies 
Because he wanted to kill Jesus Christ. But these men were very sensitive. The Bible says, And they departed unto their own country another way. They didn't want to have to give up any information. They didn't want to have to direct that king to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, they were fed up. Uh, they, they, they were so full of the Lord. They were so happy to have been in his presence. They were so honored to bow before him. And they said, man, we're going to do whatever God tells us. We have met with Jesus and we have the leadership of the Holy Ghost. We're not going back that way because we've been directed differently. And let me tell you, they were very sensitive to the leadership of the Lord. Let me ask you, how sensitive are you? How sensitive am I? So what do the wise men teach us in all of this? Well, I think you've probably figured it out, but in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. The wise men teach us to worship. Mary taught us to trust. Mo, uh, J- Joseph taught us to obey. The wise men teach us to worship. You have to trust and you have to obey in order to worship. But here they were now, bowing before Jesus. When they were come, verse 11, into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They teach us to worship. Worship means to adore, to pay divine honors to, to reverence with supreme respect and veneration. In the Bible, we have a number of examples of uh, people that were worshiping. And I want to read just a couple. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 9 and 10. It came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Wouldn't you like it if God talked with you like that? He will talk to you, but not audibly, but he'll talk to you in your heart, your spirit, and through the word of God. And by the way, if he talks to you in your heart... It will never contradict what you read on the pages of this book. Well, God told me to do this horrible thing. No, he did not. That wasn't God talking to you, friend. Well, God told me to do this, and it goes, it actually goes against one of his commands. Nope, God didn't tell you that then. No, don't you, you can't judge me. I know what God told me. No, you don't, because the Bible says that the, that, that the Holy Spirit would never say anything that God doesn't tell him to say. Amen. I won't call you a liar to your face, because I believe you heard what you thought you heard. But I will say you're extremely deceived and ignorant. I think about what just happened two days ago. And half the time, them kind of people turn around and say, God told them to do it. I don't know if that dude did or not, but what I do know is that God never tells anybody to go out and hurt people without a cause like that. 
It's one thing to be one of our troops or soldiers in the military defending the freedom of our nation and the freedom of religion and the freedom of our, our, our privacy and the opportunity to live in a free land. It's one thing to go over there and fight a battle with men and women and deal with things the way they're supposed to be dealt with. There are going to be some civilian casualties. There's going to be some problems here and there. I realize that. But to openly go out and try to hurt or harm a child and then try to blame God for it, if that's indeed what happens, and I think it does in a number of cases, at least on the news, they let us know somebody talked to this guy, told him to do something. I don't know about two days ago, but I know in the past it's happened. I'm telling you something right now. They never heard from God. Never, 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 never. They're horribly deceived. They might believe it with all their heart and sincerely do what they thought God was telling them, but that wasn't God talking, friend. I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit, I'm not only grieving for the families, I'm a little bit mad about what's been going on. Doesn't it just make you mad to think about people doing what just happened two days ago? That burns me up. I think I have a way to handle some of that. The problem is, we're not allowed to do it the way they did in the Bible, which I think would help significantly. Instead, we got all these other solutions that aren't going to add up to a hill of beans. Sorry. Just it bothers me. I've been a little bit off kilter since that happened because it just burns me up. Poor little kids. Actually, the kids are doing just fine. It's the parents that we should be concerned about. And grandmas and grandpas, brothers and sisters and family and friends and a nation who has been devastated. They need the hope of Jesus Christ, folks. We've got to give them Jesus. They may be angry with him even. But they need to know that he's there for them because sooner or later they will recognize they have to turn to him in order to find hope and peace. They won't find it through any other means. I don't care how much money pours in from around the country to provide educational benefits for their families or to pay for the wrongdoing that took place or the school that's getting sued for not having the right kind of security and all of that. None of that money, none of it will bring back that child. Or for those teachers that were lost. It'd be hard to preach this message because I'm really wound up about that thing. But anyway, they worshipped. He says over here in Exodus 9 and 10 again, that he talked with Moses and all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent. I like Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. That's worshiping. 2 Samuel 6, 14. And David danced before the Lord with his, all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. I guarantee you he wasn't busting moves like we see on the, 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 the award shows here on television. He was dancing for God. It wasn't a sensual dance. It was a dance of rejoicing. The book of... Acts, well, I didn't watch those shows, so I don't know if anybody danced, but they usually do, right? They used to ask me to dance on those before I got saved. But anyway, <laughs> you, you don't believe that, do you? You've seen me attempt to moonwalk, haven't you? You know that that's impossible for me, right? I practice in the kitchen every once in a while. I, I try to do that, and my kids just look at me and shake their head. I said, Michael came to me and asked how to do that. I taught him, and then look, he made millions. Okay, so maybe he didn't. But nonetheless, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. 
The Bible says, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. They were full of eyes within, and the rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and which is to come. And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And John finally ends with these verses on this portion, but he says in chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, remember as he's speaking to the woman there at the well, he said, but the hour, the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know what he's saying? He's saying you can bow your knee, you can say, oh God, Oh, God, all day long. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're worshiping. Because worship takes place inside. It may be expressed outwardly, but outwardly doesn't guarantee that it is inward. And yet the Bible says that he says that he seeks them that worship him in spirit and in truth. I want to give you three thoughts about worship very quickly. We've only got about ten minutes. So hold on to your seat. A couple of you are holding on. I just saw that. Number one, worship is expensive. It can be expensive. Worship is expensive. You know, the wise men, they traveled a great distance. And they even brought presents. It's kind of interesting. At Christmas time, we give what? Presents. Well, see, they borrowed that from the Bible. Now, obviously, their gifts were to Jesus. I, I, let, let me just say this, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating it, I'm just going to make a statement, I just want to think about it. Can you imagine if everybody in America, every person in America gave all their Christmas gifts to the local churches? If they actually brought all their gifts, instead of giving them to all their families and friends and relatives, instead they gave them to Jesus like the wise men did. Can you imagine how much money would come in that one day? Just all the, all the money that's spent for Christmas. Can you imagine how much churches like Community Baptist Temple could reach out and help people by giving and sharing the gospel? If we had that kind of money, that kind of money to send out missionaries, that kind of money to... I mean, think about how much money. You, you take what you spend on Christmas, multiply that by, say, 150. And in one day, we'd have that much money come in the church. Some of you say, well, I only do, I only do 500. Some say, I do 1,000. Some, some in this room spend 2,000 or more dollars a year on Christmas. Can you imagine? Multiply it by even 100. Wow, wouldn't that be something? All I'm saying is these wise men brought their gifts. Worship costs something. I think of Abraham. He was, he, he was a, very, um, a very wise man. Abraham was a godly man. And ultimately, we know that the Lord said, take your son, Isaac, and go sacrifice him on this mountain. He takes his servants, they go with him. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says, and he said to his young men, abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now, I don't know about you, but often we think, how could God 
send him up that mountain to sacrifice his son, obviously Abraham got the idea that he was coming back with him. Because notice the wording again, and I'll read it, you can listen, but he says, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. It's almost as if he knew, he knew that when they got to the top of that mountain, that whether or not he plunged a knife into his own son or not, God was going to supernaturally do something to enable him to walk back down that mountain. I mean, let's face it, God allowed his own son to die. What did he do? He resurrected him. Abraham believed that even if his own son's life was taken, God would resurrect him. But God withheld his hand, and the two came back down. Now listen, it cost Abraham something to worship God that day. He did have to go up that mount and trust God. He did have to go spend time away from family. He did have to exert some financial, uh, uh, you know, financially, give some financially to provide for the sacrifice. Up the hill he goes. He takes his son and literally he doesn't know whether or not his son is going to have to be truly sacrificed or spared. He didn't know all that. Cost him something. I think of David who is preparing to offer a sacrifice before God as a result of trying to stay a plague that was taking place in Israel. As a nation, they were being punished and God was reaching out and he was allowing men and women to die because of their rebellion and the, and the disobedience that took place in the kingdom. Here now, he goes and he's going to sacrifice to God. He's going to worship the Lord because he wants to stay the hand of God. He reaches out to a man who has a threshing floor. And he says, I want to, use the, I want to buy the threshing floor and, and I, want to, I want to sacrifice to God. The man says, that's all right. You don't have to buy anything. Man, listen, King David, I am honored that you would want to use my threshing floor. I'm honored that you'd come here and want to use my oxen. I'm going to go ahead and give those to you free. You don't have to buy anything. Man, I'm going to tell you something. That was a very gracious offer. But David refused it. He wouldn't take it. As a matter of fact, David goes on to say this. Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God, which doth not cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen. He bought them all. Why? True worship always costs. So we see that worship is expensive. It's expensive. See, to worship God means to offer Him your very best. To express your adoration through your testimony, through obedience, through your lifestyle. It's not just bowing down at an altar. It's not just bowing down at your bedside. That's not just what worship is. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a mentality. Even as you can pray without ceasing, you can be in a spirit of worship constantly and continually with God because it is in here, not out here. There's nothing wrong with bowing and there's nothing wrong with taking a position of submission and humility. But let me tell you, you can sit in your chair and worship God. You can walk down the street and worship God. You can worship God by passing out a track. You can worship God by sharing the gospel. You can worship God by telling people how good your God is. But it will cost you something. Number two, worship is exclusive. It's exclusive. The wise men traveled to worship one God and one God only. That was Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, 
we are in a world today where there's a number of attitudes of compromise, where we feel like everybody has a right, and everybody has a right, don't misunderstand me, we all have a right to believe whatever you want, but let me tell you something. There is only one God. You say, well, I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't take a strong stand on that because, you know, someone else believes that their God's God and another one believes their God's God. Well, I don't know. What's the Bible say? Because if you tell me that you don't take a strong stand on that, what you're telling me is, is that you don't care what God says. You don't care that he says that, uh, well, let's just read it. I mean, we might as well read it. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods, little g, gods, and worship them. Don't you turn aside and worship those other gods, according to Deuteronomy 11. Then, he says, and then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven, and there be no rain, and that there, the land yield her not, uh, not her fruit, lest ye perish quickly from off the good land, which the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, gave you. He says in Exodus 34, 14, For thou shalt worship no other God, little g, for the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He don't want to share you, and he doesn't want to share me with any other gods. And he has every right to demand our loyalty to him. He created all things He made heaven and earth. He placed you on this celestial globe. He allowed you to have the children you have and the family you have and the possessions you have. God did all that. Not any God, but the God. The same chapter in Isaiah 42, 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. My glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. He goes on in that same book, Isaiah 42, verse 17, this time. Then shall be turned back, they shall be turned back, they shall be greatly ashamed that trust in graven images, that say to the molten images, ye are our gods. Be careful. Do not agree with a fool in his folly. Do not say, well, yeah, you have your God and I have mine. It's all the same. It's not the same. It's, it's, it's not the same. It, it's not the same. There is only one God. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. One name, Jesus. Guys, said, well, I believe in God. I just don't believe in Jesus. You don't believe in the God of the Bible then because his name is Jesus Christ. He's the creator of all things according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Finally, last but not least, worship is explicit. It's explicit. In this case, the wise men sacrificed all. Get this now. This is so important. This is really the main point. I'm going to have to cut it short. But the wise men sacrificed, with, sacrificed all with no exception of receiving anything in return. Uh, Worship is explicit. See, they had riches. The wise men had everything they needed in their country, those many miles behind. They they traveled all that distance. They, they, They packed up all their belongings. They made their journey. They brought their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They did all of those things, and never once did they say to themselves, 
I wonder what we're going to get for this. I wonder what this king's going to give us. No, they didn't say that. Because the king was a baby. And they knew he was a baby from the scriptures. Because they knew that the baby, the Messiah, would be born of a woman. A virgin. Mary. Supernaturally conceived of the Holy Ghost. So when they went there, they went with no expectations of receiving anything from the king. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why the Lord used the wise men in the, in the story. Why he includes them in this account. To show us that we must seek God or the Lord Jesus Christ for no other reason than to worship. See, the New Testament's filled with all kinds of examples of those who, who sought for the miracles and not the man. Over in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 24, When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. That's a wonderful thing to seek for the Lord Jesus, isn't it? It's wonderful. Hold on, though. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when comest thou hither? When did you get here? Jesus answered answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. What's he saying? I mean, he nails them. He says, You guys aren't coming here to seek me. You're trying to seek a meal. You just want what I can give you. You could care less who I am. You could care less what I'm all about. All you care about is what I can give you. He nailed him. He goes on to say, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him, for him hath God the Father sealed. He nails it. And then it seems as he goes on in this conversation there in chapter 6 of John, he begins to tell them how he's the bread of life and how they have to take of him in order to live eternally. And they turn around and say, this is a hard saying. We can't deal with this kind of message. It's very difficult and it's very deep. And so we just will not follow him anymore. And many of them, many of them, many of them left. Why? Because they weren't getting what they thought they should be getting from him. It wasn't about Jesus. It was about them all along. So they went back. They stopped walking with the Lord. And anytime you stop walking with the Lord, you're always headed backwards. Let me ask you, what do you worship the Lord for? Why do you worship the Lord? Do you... Do you worship him so your children will be safe? Is that the only reason? Do you worship him so you won't lose your job? Is that why you worship? Do you worship him because you want your marriage to stay strong? Why do you worship him? Do you worship him so your bank account won't, st- won't go to the, to, to the side, the curb, that it'll stay up, that, it'll, that prosperity will continue to reign and smile upon you? Do you come to church? Is that why you come to worship God? Simply because you, you want to get the, the burden of guilt off your shoulders and you want God to somehow protect you and watch over you and you just want Him to, to meet all your needs? And Is that really why we should worship Him? The wise men didn't come for that reason. 
See, they teach us to worship God, but they also teach us why not to worship God. Listen, I thank God every day for the blessings He's poured upon me, but if He takes them away tomorrow, He's still worthy of my worship and praise. He's worthy of yours as well. I wanted to read a portion of a devotional, and this is it. It's from Streams in the Desert by Mrs. Kalman. She points to some verses in Psalms, and then she shares a paragraph written by a man by the name of George Matheson, who masterfully expresses the true object of sincere worship. Let me read the verses that go with this. And it's a short paragraph. It won't take long, but here's, it, here's what the verses say. They use Psalm chapter 134, verse 1 and verse 3. It goes on to say a song of decrees. It says, Behold, bless ye the Lord, all ye servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Verse 3, the Lord that made heaven and earth bless thee out of Zion. Here's what they say, or here's what uh, Mr. Matheson says. Strange time for adoration, you say, to stand in God's house by night, to worship in the depth of sorrow. It is indeed an arduous thing. Yes, and therein lies the blessing. It is the test of perfect faith. If I would know the love of my friend, I must see what... It can do in the winter. So with the divine love, it is easy for me to worship in the summer sunshine when the melodies of life are in the air and the fruits of life are on the tree. But let the song of the birds cease and the fruit of the tree fall. And and will my heart still go on to sing? Will I stand in God's house by night? Will I love him in his own night? Will I watch with him even one hour in his Gethsemane? Will I help to bear his cross up the dolorous way? Will I stand beside him in his dying moments with Mary and the beloved disciple? Will I be able with Nicodemus to take up the dead Christ? This is when, excuse me, this is my worship. No, then is my worship complete and my blessing glorious. My love has come to him in his humiliation. My faith has found him in his lowliness. My heart has recognized his majesty, though his mean, uh, through his mean disguise. Get this, here it is. And I know at last that I desire not the gift, but the giver. When I can stand in his house by night, I have accepted him For himself alone. Man. I know, he says, when I can stand by him, even when he doesn't look good. When I can be there, even at his cross, as he dies and suffers. Even as he accepts the humiliation and I stand supporting him in the midst of that humiliation. Even when it's dark in my life, even when trials and tribulations overwhelm me, when I know, I will know if I stay faithful then that I desire not the gift, but the giver. Isn't that wonderful? He is worthy of our worship and praise no matter what comes. So, why do you worship as we close? Why? Is it for the gift or is it for the giver?
Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time we've had together. We ask, Lord, that you'd bless it now. Father, we're grateful for all that you've done for us. But Lord, help us to worship you no matter what comes. Help us to not be so quick to want just simply what you can give us or the gift, but to be excited and longing for you, the giver. Father, there may be those in this room today that are without Jesus Christ who have yet to receive him as Savior and Lord. Father, he can offer them purpose. Not just life eternal, but purpose in this life and the next. He can offer them hope, help, strength, courage, stamina, peace. Father, again, help us now in these moments. And may that soul that has yet to come to Jesus Christ by faith to yet call upon Him and ask Him to save them, forgive them, and to take them to heaven. May they settle that even this morning as the music begins to play. May they step out into the closest aisle, come forward, see me. And Lord, for the believer today, may we evaluate our heart. May we truly probe our minds. May we really ask ourselves the tough question, why do I worship? Or maybe even, what would keep me from worshiping? Because if there's any reason why we would stop worshiping the Lord That's proof positive that there's another reason to worship him other than just to worship. Help us, Lord, to worship you because you are worthy of it. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed as the music begins to play. Just as I am, the song says. We have to come as we are. You know, God accepts us for who we are and what we are. We don't have to bring gifts. We don't have to bring works we just come we just come and he accepts us for who and what we are and you know what that's how we ought to go to him that's how we go to him not expecting gifts not expecting just blessing although he often pours it upon us every day is a blessing But boy, he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship, no matter what.